Thanks for checking out sermons from Pleasant Valley Community Church. We hope these messages encourage, convict, and inspire you to love and follow Jesus more faithfully as we seek to saturate our city with the hope of the gospel. Our online resources are meant to serve you, but they aren't a replacement for the face-to-face relationships that we were built for. So we really hope that if you're in Owensboro, you'll join us in person on a Sunday morning. And if you live elsewhere, you'll find a local church in your community where you can put down roots and find family. For more resources and to give financially to support the missions and ministries of Pleasant Valley, find us on social media or visit our website at www.pleasantvalley.cc. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Josh. Hey, y'all. It's good seeing you. Uh, Hey, I I want us to just kind of linger in prayer for a little bit. Um, The Spirit of the Lord, I think, uniquely met with us in the first service today, and there was just this sense of um, it's okay to get outside the script and outside the the plans we've made all week for this service, and I just think the Lord is calling us to pray. If you're anything like me, it's a new year, you're highly distracted, maybe stressed, maybe anxious, and our greatest need is to see God. Our greatest need is the presence of the Spirit. So um, let's just bow our heads, and we're just gonna linger a bit in prayer. Man, we're gonna open up this altar. If, if you wanna join me here at the front, if you just wanna get on your knees before the Lord, let's pray that the Spirit of God would uniquely and tangibly meet with us. Let's pray that we wouldn't be distracted as we look to God's word. Let's pray against the enemy who would seek to come into our minds and blow up our phone and and cause us not to sit under God's word. I'd love prayer for myself. If a few of you wouldn't care just to pray for me and pray that God would fill me with his Holy Spirit. Just take a few moments and prepare our hearts to hear from God. distracted by the things of this world. God, our hearts are consumed with so many things competing for our affections and our attention. Lord, there are bills to pay and emails to respond to and fires to put out in our lives and broken relationships we're trying to manage and wayward kids and sick parents and There's so many things, but Lord, we need this holy moment on this Lord's day where you give us this special grace to forget about anything other than Jesus. So God, would you perform a miracle and make that miracle be that for the next however many minutes, We see Christ. 
that we behold Jesus and that the things of this world, whether they be good or bad, grow strangely dim in light of the glory of the face of Christ. God, give us Christ. All glory be to Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. I uh, had a phone call the other night that was very difficult for me talking to, I would say, one of my top five or ten closest friends since college. Um, we were catching up, been a while, and uh Here's the deal. Life is hard, and life throws curveballs and difficulties. And uh, when life happens, one of the enemy's primary tactics is to attack anything in our lives that directly points people to Jesus. And so if you're here and you're married, many of you are. Some of you may be someday. Single or married doesn't matter, but... Satan loves to steal, kill, and destroy marriages. It's one of his primary tactics. I'm on the phone with my friend, and awesome dude, great wife, married 15 years, two great kids, and he drops this bomb. They're getting divorced. He's a pastor. I don't know who needs to hear this this morning. But if you're married, there is a real enemy who is seeking to steal, kill, and destroy. And one of his greatest ambitions is to take down marriages. And so it's a conviction for the leadership at Pleasant Valley that we are not reactive, but proactive and loving, serving, and protecting marriages in this body of Christ. We are so immensely and uniquely blessed here to have Pastor Brad and Marilyn Rhodes, exemplary, exceptional leaders in marriage, not just in this church, but nationwide and even around the world. And God's gifted us with them. And so under their leadership, we have developed a strategic, comprehensive strategy to serve and protect all the marriages. So for those of you that are engaged or about to be engaged, we have a premarital class that's exceptional. It's awesome. It's going to start again a little later this spring. And then once you get married, once you say I do, for your first five years of marriage, often those first five are very difficult. We have a small group just for folks married one to five years. We had a couple I married in here Friday. They've been married 72 hours. And this week, they're hopping into that small group for folks married one to five years. And then if you've been married longer than that, we have quarterly marriage coaching so that every 90 days, you get together with your spouse for four hours and talk about and focus on and invest in your marriage. For 10 years, Annie and I have committed to quarterly marriage coaching, and it's the single best decision we've ever made for our marriage. Our marriage is not perfect, far from it. We got a lot of ways we want to keep growing, but God's used quarterly marriage coaching to keep us intentional 
to put out flames and little things before they become massive fires. We're very busy. It'd be easy for Annie and I to make all kinds of excuses. We ain't got time for that. I don't want to take my one day off and do something. No, but it's a priority for us because the greatest gift, married folks, we can give our kids is for them to see mom and dad investing in their marriage. And so I want to ask you as a pastor, whether you've been at Pleasant Valley one day or 16 years, get involved in one of our marriage ministry opportunities from newlyweds to pre-marriage to quarterly coaching, or if you're in crisis mode, we have folks that would love to sit down and counsel you in a one-on-one or one-on-two way. So wherever you are, there's something for you. So next week, you're going to have an opportunity to sign up for any or all of those options. If you can't be here next week, just reach out to us and we can help you get connected. It's important. It's a value in our church because the marriage relationship mirrors, the Bible says, the relationship between Jesus and the church. It matters deeply. Go with me to Colossians chapter number one. And while you are turning there, yesterday we spent the day with the Heritage Christian Middle School basketball team in Hopstadt, Indiana, population seven. It's a great place. They got like the state's biggest meat factory there, which is amazing. But the boys did good. They won three out of four games. It was kind of cool because it's a showdown between Kentucky and Indiana, like the two powerhouse states for basketball. Well, you know, until, <laughs> don't get me started about John Calipari. I'm going to have some more sins to confess up here. But uh, the, the boys play good. Uh, but so watching middle school basketball, okay, it took me back to my middle school days in Trick County, middle school coach Steve Smith, who ironically was from Indiana, and I still have night terrors. One or two nights a week, I wake up like screaming and kicking. Amy's like, what in the world is wrong with you? It's a couple of reasons. One, I watch 2020 and Dateline. Most nice. So when you go to bed watching like serial killers, it tends to affect you psychologically when you sleep. Uh, but then the other thing is I have night terrors of Coach Steve Smith. In the middle of practice, he'd blow that whistle and say those dreaded, godforsaken words. Boys on the line. And if you were an athlete, you know what those words mean. On the line means you're in trouble and you're about to run till you throw up. And so to this day, I have a psychological reaction to running. It's a spiritual thing that I associate running with punishment, and so I avoid it at all costs. But here's what Coach Smith would do. He was an English teacher and a basketball coach, and he knew how teenagers get easily distracted. So we had this thing in the classroom and on the court. When he sensed the players or students were getting distracted, he would say these words, eyes. And as soon as Coach Smith said eyes, we all knew you stop what you're doing, you clap your hands, and you lock your eyes on Coach Smith. Now, it took a few weeks. The first few weeks, had to say it, eyes, eyes. And we, oh, yeah, but three, four weeks into the semester or season, buddy, you'd have eighth graders in the back making out. As soon as he said, I, lips unlocked, eyes on Coach Smith. It worked. He had a way of getting distracted people's eyes back on what mattered, and that was him in this case. In 2023, social media, 
and all the cultural and political and social drama in the world, in our lives, we're so distracted. I mean, we got 10, we spend more time picking what show to watch at night than we do watching the shows because you got all these different options. We got social media, we got TikTok and Instagram and Facebook and MySpace. Some of us still do that. And we know we got all these things competing and our brains are so scattered and busy. And I think the word for 2023 God's given me for us is eyes. Let's get our eyes off all the drama, all the negativity, all the crazy stuff, and all the nightly news talking heads that all have an agenda, none of which is Christ. And we're so distracted. And I think God is blowing the whistle, as it were, saying, eyes, eyes on Christ. Eyes on Christ. Christ, and that will save us from drowning in this cynical, negative, psychotic culture we live in. And so in all the scripture, I can think of no more helpful passage to go to to get our eyes on Christ than Colossians chapter 1. So turn there with me, Colossians chapter 1. It's the Apostle Paul writing from prison, as he often did, to the church at Colossae, a church he never met in person. This is before Zoom and FaceTime Live. And he is writing this letter to a confused church, having been infiltrated by false teachers about who Jesus is. So the purpose of Colossians is to explain who Jesus is. Many scholars think verses 15 through 20, we're just going to do 15 through 18, is actually a quotation from an old Christian hymn about the wonder of Christ. And so may our prayer be eyes on Christ as we look at his reflection in these ancient words. Verse 15, speaking of Christ, he is the image of the invisible Christianity 101, if you want to see God, if you want to know God, look to Christ. Christ is the image of the invisible God. Without Christ, you can't get beyond the shadow of who God is. Jesus is more than a man. He is more than a prophet. Christ is God. Skip over four verses, verse 19. For God, here, he's referring to God the Father. Christians believe in the Trinity, One God, three persons. Father, Son, Spirit, distinct persons, one God. So verse 19, for God, that's the Father, was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in 
Christ. This is such an important doctrine because it separates biblical Christianity from every other world religion. Students, you will go to the university and they will say to you, ultimately, all religions are the same. Craziness. They don't even pretend to be the same. And it's these verses that separate biblical Christianity from Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, New Age spirituality, and it hinges upon who Christ is. He's not simply a man or a prophet or a religious motivational speaker. He's God. All the fullness of God in Christ. It's so important. Paul says it again a third time. Flip one page, chapter two, verse nine. For the entire fullness of God. So back in chapter one, he said all the fullness. If you don't like the word all, he said, okay, how about the entire fullness of God? So it's comprehensive, all-encompassing language, not a square inch of God that does not dwell bodily in Christ. To see Christ is to see God. Without Christ, no vision of God. And the writer of Hebrews comes along later and says, chapter 1, verse 3, Christ is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Now, here's a little cultural theological context. In Jewish theology, a primary component is this. You cannot see God. He's invisible. Okay, God's a spirit. You can't see a spirit. Fair enough. We're tracking there. So Jesus comes along 2,000 years ago and blows the mind of every Jewish person. Jesus comes along, God in flesh, two hands, two feet, two eyes, two ears, nose, two nostrils, a voice, hair, went through puberty as a teen. And Christ says, you can see God, Jews, Look at me. He says in John chapter 14, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. And because he said that, the Jews nailed him to a cross. The reason for the crucifixion of Christ from a human perspective, John 5, 18, don't tell there, it's because he claimed to be God. And so they nailed him to a cross. The doctrine of the divinity, that's a fancy way of saying Jesus is God. The, the divinity of Christ and the exclusivity of Christ is the most hated teaching in the universe. A PC all-inclusive, nobody gets left out, non-offensive culture detest the teaching that Christ is 
different. He's unique. He's above all the gods. He's the only way. But it's one of the plainest teachings in Scripture. In 2018, I had the joy of spending time in North Africa among some of the kindest people, exclusively Muslim population. And it was, I was shocked at how easy spiritual conversations were. Our Muslim friends are happy to talk about Jesus because they respect him as a prophet, as a moral example, as a leader. In fact, Muslims, Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, essentially every world religion respects Jesus. I mean, how can you not? He never heard a flea. I mean, he, he gives his life for people. He heals. He loves kids. Like, he's literally perfect. How can you not like Jesus? But the problem is, they want to respect Jesus as a person, as a leader, as an inspirational speaker, as a kind, but they deny he's God. And when you cross that line, it evokes hostility. So here was my experience in conversations with Muslim friends in North Africa. We could talk about Jesus. It's going great. But the moment I would transition that conversation through a translator to, okay, but Jesus is not like Muhammad. Christ is God. The second you go there, the mood changes. The second you go there, the defense mechanisms kick in. There's an innate hostility towards the notion that Christ is God. Why? Because the moment you say Christ is God, it's a threat. Because if Jesus is just like every other created being, if Jesus is like Muhammad and Joseph Smith and Gandhi, or but if Jesus is just another created being, then you can put him right up alongside all the other religious leaders and take your pick. They're all amazing. You choose what works for you. You do you. I'll do me. We all go to heaven in the end. Nonsense. Because Christ, if he's God, is above all the other gods. And if Christ is God, he's not the Christian way. He's the only way. The PC, permissible, acceptable. And listen, friends, if you're going to be a Christian in the workplace and in this society, you're going to get this. It's so exclusive and narrow to say Christ is the only way. But friends, that's precisely because Christ is exclusively God and there is no other. I mean, you compromise the scriptures. If you say anything less, you cannot respect Christ as a leader, as a religious prophet, and deny he's God. Either Christ is God or he's a liar. There is no option C or fill in the blank. He's God or Christ is the biggest liar and phony in religious history. 
you have a choice. You crown Christ as God and King or you crucify him as a heretic, demon-possessed, crazy. You choose this day who Christ is to you. There is option A and there is option B. And the scripture makes it so clear. Without Jesus Christ, you cannot know God. Back to verse 15. Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Now, that word firstborn sometimes throws us off. Entire cults and false religions have been birthed out of a misunderstanding of that word firstborn in verse 15. Words matter. That word firstborn throws us off because it it seems like it's saying, well, Jesus was the first person God created, right? I mean, he just... It kind of seems like that what he's saying there. He's the firstborn. Okay, so Jesus was created by God, and then God made all the other things and all the other people. Like, for example, when I say, as a dad, and a proud dad, James, who's here somewhere, is my firstborn. He's the first one Annie and I created. Sounds weird to say it that way, but it's basically what happened. Kids, if you're like, well, how'd that happen? Talk to your parents after the service, and they'll be happy to tell you. Uh, but, but luckily for James, by the way, everybody tells him he looks like his mom, not me, he, which is very good news for him. But uh, the, the point is, seriously, okay, back on track. I is Jameis. Okay, you do what I say y'all should do. The point is, in 2006, James did not exist. In 2007, he did. He was born first out of all our kids. But that's not what the Scripture is saying about Jesus. That Greek word we translate as firstborn in the English can have two meanings. The first meaning can be the firstborn in chronological order. You got your oldest kid, then your middle, then your baby, who's there's no pictures of them when they get older. That's not what he's saying about Christ. The second and primary usage of that Greek word translated firstborn in the English refers to prominence or preeminence in position or rank. So in Jewish and Greek culture, The firstborn was the ranking child, the one who received the full inheritance when daddy died. He got all the cattle, all the property, all the land, all the bass boats and the beach house. He got all of it. That child didn't necessarily have to be the first chronologically born, but he was the child of prominence and preeminence. That's the word here referring to Jesus. When Paul says in verse 15, Christ is the firstborn over all creation, it means Christ is supreme. Christ ranks number one in the universe and gets all the creation from the Father as his inheritance. Why? Verse 16. For, here's Paul's logic. It makes sense that Christ is preeminent and number one because it all belongs to Christ because he's going to say now, verse 16, he created it all. 
And if you create something, it belongs to you. Verse 16, for everything was created by Christ. Wow. Jesus is so much more than your homeboy, teenagers. He's not this, this man upstairs trying to stay awake and freaking out while the world goes crazy. Christ created the universe. Everything in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, that refers to angels and demons and all that invisible stuff that's real. Christ made them all. Paul, little pawns in his hand. All things, back to verse 16, have been created through Christ and for Christ. So track with me, eyes, eyes on Jesus. Why would we fixate our eyes on Jesus and have a better life? It's because in verse 15, Christ is God. And if that's not enough, in verse 16, Christ created everything. This means two things. If Christ is creator, of the universe, as the scripture teaches here, Colossians 1, teaches in Hebrews 1, John 1, to name a few. If Christ is creator, that means, number one, you are not here because of evolution or a big bang. I don't care what the biology process You are here because Jesus created you. And secondly, it means, therefore, you and your life has meaning and purpose and real value. If evolution is true as is taught and there is no creator, our lives have no meaning, purpose, or value. And to say otherwise would be intellectual dishonesty. What I appreciate about so many evolutionists is they are, in fact, honest about the hopelessness and the depressing ultimate reality of their worldview. For example, one evolutionist, J.W. Burroughs, said, and I quote, we are nothing more than a lonely, intelligent mutation in a cold, passionless universe. There are no clues for human conduct, no answers to human moral dilemmas. I appreciate his honesty. Another evolutionist, Professor Dr. William Provine of Cornell University said, quote, the universe cares nothing for us. And we have no ultimate meaning in life. It's true. If we're here because of an impersonal, random process or bang. If they're right and evolution is true, Rob Morgan 
is correct when he says, if evolution is true, we're all doomed. We're all aboard the Titanic, and there is are no lifeboats. We can sing and dance and throw the dice and drink the beer, but there is no escaping the iceberg because we're all living on a doomed planet in a doomed universe, which will one day grow cold and dark and still and all will become as though nothing had ever been. We are no more than a match struck in the dark and blown out again. There's no hope there. There's no purpose. There's no motivation. There's no value. There's no meaning. But now contrast this terribly depressing, pessimistic, hopeless, atheistic worldview with the teaching of Christ. And you choose this day your path. Verse 16, everything was created by Christ in heaven and on earth. The visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all the things have been created through Christ and for Christ, which means your life has meaning and value because someone personally thought about you when they made you and Christ made you for himself so that he could enjoy you and you could enjoy him. By the way, Christians, that's why we preach the sanctity of human life. It's not fundamentally political or social. It's an imago day. It's an image of Christ issue. God made us. He wove us together, Psalm 139, in our mother's womb. You were created by Christ for Christ. Therefore, every life matters. Black, white, brown, Asian, Hispanic, special needs, unborn. Every life matters because every life is Christ life. So Christ creates everything. And then we, the creation, rebel against him. Christ says to the Son, hang right here and burn at 12,000 degrees Fahrenheit, and the sun obeys the voice of Christ. And Christ says to the Atlantic Ocean, tide come right here and no further, and the ocean obeys the voice of Christ. Christ says to the sparrow, fly here and get your worm here, and it obeys his voice. And Christ says to us, obey me, and we say no. The creation has rebelled against the creator. And yet the creator Christ, instead of saying to hell with us, left heaven, comes to earth, lives and dies for us and dies on a cross. This should have been ours. What love have you ever seen like this? That is the beauty and glory of Christmas, by the way. Think about this. If this is true, if Christ is the creator, what Christmas is is so much more than Santa and presents. Christmas is the Christ child sleeping in a manger under the stars he created. Wow. 
There's no one like Christ. Tell me what Muhammad and Joseph Smith and Buddha or Gandhi do with this. In one person, this Christ, you have the eternal climax of sovereign deity, creative power, and breathtaking, astounding humility that the creator would subject himself to his own creation and die on a tree he fashioned with his own hand. Wow. And then this Christ on the cross wears a crown of thorns. Symbolized. Look at the theology here in Genesis 3. Creation and humanity rebels. God curses the ground and says, man, woman, the ground will bring forth thorns and thistles for you. When you're picking those roses and you get that little prick, it's, it's a part of the curse. Christ on the cross doesn't just die for sinners. He wears the crown of thorns symbolizing Christ is bearing the curse of the whole world he created. He's saving the universe, not just the people that live in. He's going to make all things new because it's all for him. Every molecule, atom, cell, clown, and tree belongs to Christ and is for Christ. But Jesus did not simply create the world in verse 17. Oh, it just keeps getting deeper. I mean, you could spend a million years swimming in the beauty of Christ and barely get off the shoreline. And we want to spend our time bickering and fighting and arguing and complaining on petty things. Throw them out to a hill of beans. And we want to lose friends over dumb stuff. And we want to defriend one another on Facebook over stupid things. And Christ is saying, I God. Look at me. Get lost in me. And stop wasting your life piddling around in mud puddles like kids swim in Christ. In verse 17, Christ is before all things. That means Christ has no beginning. It means Christ doesn't need a big bang because he's before all the things. Christ is before all things and by Christ all things hold together. And this is where we're going to start landing the plane. I don't want us to rush through that phrase in verse 17, inspired by the Holy Spirit. We underlined it. Eyes. That actually worked for a few of y'all. Saw y'all on Facebook there. Eyes. Okay. Christ is before all things, and by Christ, all things hold together. Let's just marinate in that and have our little minds blown. 
Christ is before all things, and by Christ, all the things hold together. Now, Hebrews 1, verse 3, basically the same thing, different author. I don't think Paul wrote Hebrews. Some do. We don't know for sure. It really doesn't matter. Same thing. Christ is the radiance of his glory. That's the Father's glory and the exact representation of God's nature. And Christ upholds all things by the word of Christ's power. So in both of these verses, here's the teaching. So we're clear. All the things in the universe are being held together by Christ. So let's go to science class for a minute. I know that's a trigger for some. AP, biology, 10th grade. Ah, right? Okay, well, here we go. Look, I want us to parallel Colossians 1.17 and Hebrews 1.3. And you're about to jump into waters if the smartest PhDs from all the Ivy League schools can do nothing but scratch their heads. And you're going to walk away with certainty over with something. They got no clue what to do. Because we have a higher authority. And it's not speculation. It's the word of the eternal God. Sure. Verse 17, Colossians 1. By Christ, all things hold together. Hebrews 1.3, parallel. Christ upholds all things. See the same language? By the word of his power. Now, let's just pick on Hebrews 1.3. All things and power. Look at those two. All things in verse 3 is what we would call in scientific language mass. All the things. The galaxies, the moon, the stars, the sky, the grass blades, the seashell, the babies, the birds, the flowers. It's what scientists call mass. It's matter. It's stuff. Verse 3, Christ's power is what we would call in scientific language energy. So the Bible comes along and gives meaning and depth and purpose to the scientific world created by an intelligent designer who makes it all work. Take a magnet, for example. All right, so go back to middle school science class or whatever, right? What happens if you take a magnet in your left hand and a magnet in your right hand and you push the positive ends together? What does it do? It what? Help me out. It repels, right? Because opposites do what? Attract. Like charges repel. We all know this. Go grab you a couple of magnets, test it out. It, it's, it's, it's just the way the world is, the way God made it. But here's the great mystery of the universe that have had scientists scratching their heads for decades, if not centuries. In his book, Einstein, biography, of course, of Albert Einstein by Walter Isaacson, 
Isaacson describes how many physicists are utterly perplexed, confounded, baffled, confused as to how the nucleus, remember that word from science class, seventh grade? The nucleus of the atom, how it holds together. Because scientifically speaking, it, it's an impossibility. But it does. The nucleus of the atom contains positively charged protons, which should do what? Repel. Just like those positively charged magnets repel. You don't have to be a Christian to say that's reality. But physicists tell us that something mysterious and invisible holds holds them together. They hold the nucleus of that atom together. Because based on what we know about electromagnetic energy, every atom is supposed to fly apart. And the entire universe explodes in a complete nothingness. Science would demand that from a purely human perspective. But there's some invisible force, scientists say, that's stronger than the electromagnetic force that miraculously is holding the atoms together and preventing you from exploding. And the galaxies from exploding. It's a miracle that the world is here. In other words, they got no explanation for how we're breathing, for how the sun doesn't scorch us. So physicists and the most brilliant minds don't know what to call this force that keeps the atoms together. So here's what they do. They call it, quote, the stronger force. I mean, that's what they got. Stronger force. Let's, let's go with that one. But Christian physicists, and I'm so thankful for them, and I hope that kids in this church will go to college and get PhDs in physics and biology and chemistry and go to the most prestigious universities and tell the truth. Because God has the truth. And it's liberating. And all these poor students are being fed lies by idiots who don't believe in God. It's heartbreaking. So young, brilliant minds go study and get educated and go shape the next generation with truth and stand up in biology class in college and call out the professor if they're lying. Be considerate and kind, but speak the truth unashamedly. So, scientists, atheist scientists, don't know what to call this invisible force, so they call it the stronger force, but Christian physicists know this stronger force has a name, and his name is Jesus. Do you see how the Bible and science collide right here in the biblical text? Colossians 1.17, 
Christ is before all things, and by Christ all things, all the atoms hold together by Christ. Wow. Friends, the only reason the universe doesn't disintegrate into nothingness is because Jesus is holding it all together. I love what Paul Apple wrote. This is, I know I'm going over, I'm sorry. Some, some Sundays you just, you, it's just worth it. Because if we're going to leave here and get on stupid social media, which I'm on all the time, so I know I'm a hypocrite, but I love taking pictures of my kids and my food, and I just can't stop it. Because I need you to know I love fried chicken, and I need you to see how awesome Cruz is and all these instruments. But that's what we're going to do. I, we're going to go home and watch stupid shows and look at, I got to stop using the word stupid. We're going to do, because we tell our kids not to use that word. But it's just so many stupid things that steal our attention from Christ. Here's what I want you to do. Because I got a few minutes and I'm just scratching the surface. You got the rest of your life to swim in this stuff. Go home and read the Bible. And pray and get lost in Christ. And you'll move a millimeter towards his beauty, and then you'll get to heaven and you'll again, and then it'll be a million more years, and we'll keep on digging in. I was supposed to be quoting Paul Apple, so here's what he said Consider what would happen if things changed. In other words, consider what would happen if Christ didn't hold it all together, which is what the scientists they don't know about Christ, so they don't get it. But Consider what would happen if things change. The sun has a surface temperature of 12,000 degrees Fahrenheit. That's hotter than Annie keeps our house at night. By like five degrees. It, sorry. That's why we do marriage coaching. I got bitterness problems about the stupid thermostats. If, look at this. So we're talking about the sun. Surface temp at 12,000 degrees Fahrenheit. If the sun were any closer to earth, we'd burn. If the sun were any further, we'd freeze. Christ commands the sun to burn here at that temp, and it obeys his voice, lest we die. Our globe, I'm quoting, is tilted on an exact angle of 23 degrees, which enables us to have four seasons. If it weren't tilted, vapors from the ocean would move north and south, eventually piling up monstrous continents of ice. If the moon did not remain a specific distance from the earth, the ocean tide would completely inundate the land twice a day. Every time you go outside at night and see that big, awesome moon, Christ holds it there. And nowhere else, lest we die. If the ocean floor, all my Florida people, next time you go down there, glory in this. If the ocean floor merely slipped a few feet deeper, 
the carbon dioxide and oxygen balance in the Earth's atmosphere would be completely upset and no vegetable or animal life could exist on Earth. Things don't happen in our universe by accident. Jesus Christ sustains the universe. He is the principle of cohesion. Brothers and sisters, if Jesus is sustaining the whole universe by his word, little flock in Jesus's words, why would we worry in 2023? Because no harm or devil can touch us apart from the sovereign permission of Jesus Christ. And even when those bad things do touch us, because he allows them to sometimes, when they do, Christ is so in control, he can still take the bad and the pain and redirect it ultimately for our good and make us more like Christ. So even the bad can be translated into beauty, if nothing else, in heaven because Christ is working the whole thing. So no detail of our life is too small for his concern, but no problem in our life is too big for his sovereign power. Christ upholds the Milky Way galaxy with his pinky and with his pointer finger. He numbers the hairs on your head. Takes me back to that song as a kid. He's got the whole world in his hands. Friends, if Christ can hold Saturn and Jupiter in his hand, he's not going to drop you because he loves his children. And that's why we conclude with verse 18. Christ is also the head of the body, the church. Friends, it is a privilege to be a part of the church of Jesus Christ because for all the wonderful organizations and entities in the world, only one gets the joy of claiming Christ as its head, whom Christ self-authenticates and self-identifies with, and that is the church of God. Oh, love the church and the people of God because Christ is the head. And when we are honorary towards the church and critical of the church and gossip about the church, Christ the head takes it very personal what you do with his body and his pride tread very carefully. Christ is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning. So we come back to that. The firstborn, there's that word again, from the dead. That's referring to Christ's resurrection. Now, here's how we're going to close. So that Christ might come to have first place in everything. Colossians 1.18 is the final destination of the universe. The purpose of life, the end for which God created the world is that, that Christ might have first place in everything. The ESV says that 
in everything Christ might have preeminence. And the NIV says that in everything Christ might have the supremacy. Here's what that means in layman's terms. There is not a cell or atom or molecule or Vladimir Putin or Kim Jong-un or Donald Trump or Joe Biden or power or anything in the world that doesn't fall under the supremacy and the preeminence of Christ. The point of today's teaching is Jesus Christ is unequivocally, undisputedly preeminent and supreme and number one in the universe over all the things. But here's the question. Is he number one in your life? How many believers want to amen this part? Yes, Christ rules over world powers and leaders and militaries. Yeah, Christ is over all those people, but then we get down here and we give Christ leftovers. And we're giving mixed messages of hypocrisy to the world. Theologically, we say, Christ is number one, but don't you dare let Christ touch my checkbook. And it's utter hypocrisy. Christ is number one over all the atheists but I ain't letting Christ up into my home and my marriage and my parenting. Christ rules over all the bad guys. Amen. But I won't let Christ rule over my business and my work and my leisure and my sex life and my dating life and all of it. Friends, many of us in this room, we don't have a theological problem. We got a problem with living a life that is inconsistent with the things we say with our mouth. Because if on paper, Jesus is number one over all the things, but in our life, he's left over. We're missing it. So this year, here's the word that God's given for me in my personal life, and I want to share it with you. Eyes. Oh, Coach Smith would love it. Eyes. Every time you get in a funk, eyes on Christ. Every time you get a text message that rouses you up, okay, eyes on Christ. Every time you get an ugly email, okay, eyes on Christ. Every time your ex spreading rumors about you, okay, eyes on Christ. I don't need his approval. Every time you get weighed down by all the talking heads and the political drama and the cultural crazy, okay, I, don't, I don't need, eyes on Christ. Get lost in Christ and shake off all the negativity and drama. Eyes on Christ. Let's bow our heads. Let's just take a few moments and sit under the supremacy of Christ. And here's what I want to encourage you to do. With heads bowed, eyes closed, eyes, just think eyes. Okay, Christ, I want to see Christ. Now, I want you to walk through 
in your mind, walk through your home right now. Walk through the garage, laundry room, living room, kitchen, bathroom, bedroom, playroom. Walk through all of it in your home and say, okay, where, what part of my home life have I not surrendered to the supremacy of Christ? All the things in the home are his. Confess that now to God surrender all of it in the house to Christ. Okay, now open up that laptop. If you're old school, pull up your desktop or your phone and go to those deleted files. Go to that search engine history you've cleared. And go to those Facebook messages and Instagram messages that you've deleted lest your parents or spouse see them. And the pornography and the emotional affair and the sexting and the text threads with gossip and slander. And hold it out to the supremacy of Christ. And confess and repent. Kids, students, young people, you've lied to your parents. You're living that secret. What you did at that party Friday night, that relationship you're in, you should not be in. things you're drinking and smoking that mom and dad don't know about, Christ sees it. And he is saying, confess the sin and bow your knee and heart to the supremacy and reign of Christ in your life.
you're married, set in your mind on the couch, look your spouse in the eyes. And lay out before Christ the bitterness in your heart, the lack of gratitude for the gift God has given you, imperfect though they be. The anger you've harbored towards them, the disconnectedness the unintentionality, the silent treatment, the dishonesty. That chasm in your marriage and lay it out under the reign of Christ who gave you this marriage to make him honored and repent. And now type in www.usbank.com. Fifththirdbank.com, bbnt.com. Click on that account and look at the bank statements. Look at the credit card swipes. Look at the Venmos. Look at the giving record to the things of Christ and the mission of Christ and hold those up in comparison to shoes and gadgets and subscriptions and trips and retirement. Is Christ reigning supremely over all the pennies and dollars in all the accounts? And to the extent which they're not, surrender it now to the supremacy of Christ. And finally, say, Spirit of God, who is that one person that when I see their face or hear their name or see their post on IG or Facebook, my blood pressure rises? I don't like them. If I weren't a Christian, I'd hate them. They get under my skin. I wish I didn't go to church with them. In fact, I may leave the church so I don't have to see them. Angry, I'm 
bitter. If I see them at Kroger after church, I'll sneak through the other aisle and pretend like I'm on my phone so I don't have to talk to them. Who's the one? And now behold the face of Christ who is looking down from heaven saying, forgive, forgive, turn the other cheek, love, give grace because I have given you grace. And who are you? to treat them that way when I've done so much for you. Who are you? It's surrender all that ugly in the heart to the supremacy of Christ and repent. And be set free from the poison anger and bitterness be liberated in Christ. Christ gives us many ways to behold his supremacy, one of which is the Lord's Supper. We'll conclude by partaking the Lord's Supper and singing one final word. If you didn't get the elements on the way in, we'll give you space now to do that. You can hop up. There's tables behind you in various places. You're not sure where to go, ask somebody standing up. Is your preparing? heads and hearts bowed. Prepare for this meal. This is a holy moment. The Lord's Supper is a tangible, physical representation of the gospel of Christ. It, to eat the bread and drink the cup is to experience Christ with all the senses, with the taste buds, with the smell with a physical touch, it is to receive anew by faith Christ. Eyes. Eyes on Christ in this meal. Now, we enter this supper because we've heard of sins we've committed. And if you're anything like me, the Spirit of God has shown us some kind of sin in our heart. And, and we feel conviction for some. You feel shame or even condemnation. There's no place for me here. I'm a sinner. Why would God love me? I blew it again. 
that the Lord's Supper is a meal of grace. It is a meal for people that just can't get it together, but a, a people who wonder and stumble into the arms of Christ every day because we need Christ forgiveness. And so don't eat this meal with shame or condemnation. Eat this meal with joy because Christ has paid for every sin we've talked about. And so long as your trust is in Christ and you've turned from your sins, there's forgiveness and complete blamelessness for you. So receive the meal with joy. Eyes on Christ. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says, I received from the Lord, but I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's drink. Let's stand. Lord Jesus, we go our separate ways with a song. of adoration and admiration for Christ. Lord, we're going to give you our next three minutes. It's been a long service, but it's for you. And we're going to give you three more minutes before we leave and get lost in the world and craziness. We're going to put our eyes on you. Capture our affections as we sing these words. May they have meaning and value because they're true. Christ, you are worthy. Take our hearts and voices and receive praise. In Jesus' name we sing, amen. Thanks for checking out sermons from Pleasant Valley Community Church. For more resources and to give financially to support the missions and ministries of Pleasant Valley, find us on social media or visit our website at www dot pleasantvalley dot cc